Hey, everybody. I've got a little bit of housekeeping here before we get into the episode about Instagram and Theology Beer Camp. So I've been getting more active on Instagram, and I just want to let you guys know, in case you want to see me make some videos where I look directly into the camera, I'm sharing some stories and posts about basically all the topics that we cover on this show over at Instagram.com slash Dan Coke. That's C-O-K-E, and the link is in the show notes. Also, Theology Beer Camp is returning in 2024, October 17th through 19th. The theme is Return of the God Pods. That is a Lord of the Rings reference, which should surprise nobody. I will be there alongside Brian McLaren, Diana Butler-Bass, the New Evangelicals, Bible for Normal People, Tony and Josh from GGCH, of course, Trip Fuller and Homebrewed Christianity, and a whole grip of others. And you can use the promo code RETURNOFYHP, all one word, for $25 off your ticket. Prices go up starting June 1st. That link will be in the notes. I hope to see a bunch of you guys there in October. It was a serious highlight of last year for me. My name is Dan Koch. Like many of you, I've been on a complicated faith journey for a number of years now. And while I tend to find myself on the progressive side of Christianity, my goal is not to make liberal converts. I want this show to be a resource for Christians to my right and to my left, as well as former Christians and non-religious folks, anyone who finds themselves asking difficult questions about God, science, prayer, fate, suffering, evangelism, and more. So many of us have been given bad answers to those good questions, often by people with pure intentions. I want to say that you have permission to take both Christianity and the modern world very seriously. And I hope to facilitate that by introducing you to people seeking God across the Christian spectrum, engaging hard questions in a multitude of ways. Thanks for listening. Okay, I'm actually going to ask you in a second to pause this podcast and do something before you listen to the episode. We've all been watching the news, and uh, I I imagine almost all of us were pretty tremendously emotionally impacted by the footage of George Floyd's death in Minneapolis. I know for me, it was a different kind of video, even though I've seen a lot of these videos over the past few years. This one, for a number of reasons, felt different. Um, And the protests are different and the involvement of uh, white people in them seems different, seems larger. It's a pretty crazy moment. It feels like a good opportunity type of a moment for real change. And there is one thing that we can do that I just love. It's so straightforward. Uh, DeRay Mackison, who was involved from the beginning with Black Lives Matter in Ferguson and who ran for mayor of Baltimore at one point, he and uh, his team at Campaign Zero have put together a thing called eight can't wait number eight can't wait.org. Basically they have a slew of empirical data and they've figured out there are eight policies that would reform police departments across the country that would lead to combined a 72% reduction in police violence. And that's violence towards uh, black citizens, white citizens, everybody, right? So it's just a reduction in overall police violence. You can go to 8cantwait.org, and you can type in your city and see which of the eight are already in place. So, for instance, in Seattle, 
we already have six out of eight of them, which is great. But two we don't have, and one of the two that we don't have is actually the greatest reducer of violence of any of the eight. So I have been uh, tweeting at, emailing our mayor. Um, there, there's simple things you can do. Uh, once you know which ones they are, you can find your mayor uh, or your police chief or both their email address or their Twitter handles and let them know. Most of these policies can be enacted without any kind of vote, uh, any kind of special interests uh, getting in there. Um, the mayor, with the police chief's help in most cities, can enact all eight of these policies on their own. So it's an incredible moment. This is the right kind of moment to put the right kind of pressure on our elected officials. So before you listen to the episode, please go to 8cantwait.org. There's a link in the show notes. Find out which ones your city does not have and send an email or a tweet or whatever Facebook message to your mayor and police chief and ask for those things to be put in place. It'll take you three minutes uh, and then come back and listen. So, okay, with that out of the way, um, let's just give people... (laughs) give you a few seconds in case now you're finding your place again. Thank you. Thank you for doing that. I appreciate you being involved in a sensible, data-backed, exciting, well-timed, you know, use of your political will toward uh, greater justice. So what we're doing here today, um, a lot of people of color are exhausted right now, especially black people. And especially public thinkers and writers who are the type of people that do podcast interviews. As you can imagine, uh, for them, it's like they are accountants and it is April 12th right now. They have got everybody who ever wants to talk to them all year wants to talk to them now or, or perhaps over a multiple year period. But I realized that I had something in the vault, so to speak, that was already recorded. So I don't have to exhaust any of my friends of color or acquaintances. I've just got this thing. It is from my old podcast, which is called Depolarize. Now, let me explain to you what we were doing at this point in the show, because it's in the middle of a season. This is after the election. I interviewed um, like 40 voters, 30 or 40 voters, and I had them in four categories. There were white Trump voters, white non-Trump voters, uh, non-white voters, and uh, non-evangelical Christian voters, right? So this is from the third group. These are non-white voters. All of them are Christians, um, but they're not, none of them are white. So they're all people of color. And uh, this episode was the first of a two-part. And in this one, we're just listening to them. We're just hearing their stories of what it was like to grow up non-white in America, not the majority ethnicity, And uh, it's really powerful stuff. And I imagine most of you listening to this show have not heard it. I know that a lot more people listen to the show than listened to that show. Plus, it's been three years since this episode came out. So pretty safe to assume most of you haven't heard it. And uh, it's something that I'm very happy to have made back then and and glad to be able to repurpose it now. So basically, um, if I had done this today, I probably would have only interviewed black people. That'd be a little bit more appropriate to the moment. However, plenty of stuff uh, you see cropping up in uh, people's stories, uh, other people of color as well. There's there's plenty of similarities. You'll hear that. Um, and uh, let's see. One last thought. It feels to me like something has shifted since three years ago when this episode came out. At that time, I felt the need to sort of argue 
for the concept of simply listening. Like, let's just listen. And in 2017, that felt, to me anyway, kind of novel, like a thing I had to come to and then sort of really argue for. That doesn't feel, it doesn't feel that way to me today, um, especially the last three weeks or so. It actually feels like there is a lot more consensus that white people, or in this case, a predominantly white listenership of this podcast, uh, which I happen to know because I surveyed the patrons. Thank you guys for responding to that. Predominantly white listenership and myself being white um, are a lot more open these days to just listening to people of color than I felt like people were open to three years ago. That feels encouraging. Uh, and it seems like maybe with George Floyd and the um, resultant protests and pushes for policy change that we're turning a kind of corner here. There's a lot of anecdotal evidence for that. I'm waiting to see uh, some stronger sort of objective data, but I'm hopeful um, and I'm certainly willing to do whatever my little role is in that. So, okay. I feel like I've been talking for a long time. I apologize. Let's get into the episode. And at the end of the episode, I will tell you, I'll come back on and talk about some links that are in the show notes uh, for your involvement further. Okay. Thank you guys. Step one is what we're going to try and do today. We are going to listen to a number of different voices on a podcast, and these voices are going to be telling their various stories of growing up non-white in America. There will be no commentary by myself or Ellen, unless it's necessary just to give context so you know what it is we're talking about in the interview. But I do want to be super clear about one thing. This is not simply an episode designed to make white people feel guilty. Included are stories that are painful and that shine a light on racism being alive and well in America, but there are also answers to my questions that show things going pretty well for people. I am personally not that interested in manufacturing guilty feelings in white listeners, in myself, in my friends, in my family. What I am interested in is accuracy, reality, facts. So if somebody needs to feel guilty, let that come as a result of hearing the truth. What follows here are true accounts of lives lived within the United States by Christians who happen to have been born to parents who were not both of European descent. That's really the main difference. That is the specific difference that accounts for most of what you're going to hear today. Next week, Ellen will return and we will get into more specifically political questions. We'll compare and contrast these voters with other voters and we'll give ourselves a chance to react and process what we're hearing. But this week, we're asking questions about the experience of being non-white in America, and we're simply going to listen. First off, let's meet our voters. My name is Jason Brooks. I'm 36. I live in L.A., but I've lived all over the country and the world, and I identify mostly as the, with the African-American tradition. My name is Rachel Beatty. I am 34, and I live in Mount Vernon, Washington. I identify as... Latina. My name is Jehan Matthew. I am 34 years old. I live in Sunnyvale, California, and I've lived here most of my life. Ethnically, I'm an Indian. I was born in India, lived in the Middle East for three years, but moved here to Sunnyvale, California when I was three years old. So most of my life has been here in the States. Okay. I'm Candice. I'm 31. I live in Seattle, Washington, and I'm Korean American. I'm Justin Gibney. I'm 36 years old. I live in Atlanta, Georgia, and I'm an African-American. 
I started out these interviews just asking them to tell me some stories about their experiences of growing up as something other than the majority ethnicity in America. We're going to jump around a bit because most of our voters had multiple stories to tell. We're going to start with Rachel talking about both the difficulty and the value of even having these conversations. Here's that clip. Race and immigration, and then on the other hand, sort of gender, sexuality, and power, the Me Too movement, Harvey Weinstein. Mm -hmm. Those are kind of the two, the two dominant questions in America right now, at least in terms of the way that, broadly speaking, the left wants to frame political questions. Mm -hmm. The fact that it's so central do you find that helpful? Do you find it uncomfortable? I know you, and so I know that you live in kind of a rural, not rural, but more of a red county than mm -hmm. King County, where Seattle is, for yeah. instance. You're an hour away from us, and there's a different culture, you know, mm -hmm. an hour outside of the city. Mm -hmm. What's your experience of just the fact that it is at the forefront in people's minds? I think that it's a good thing, but it's still uncomfortable because it's a conversation that's not done well. Yeah. And and it brings up really painful things because it means having to talk about my experience and my painful experiences. And that's really that feels really vulnerable. And if people are not able to hear my experience or other people's experience of pain whether that be through sexual harassment or harassment because of the color of your skin, these are painful stories. So we don't want to have to have these conversations if no one's going to listen. Like, why would I want to go to my most painful, shameful places in my life? So I'm from L.A. I'm from Watts, which is South Central mid-90s or early 90s was a tough part. Uh, and I was homeschooled from zero to 14. And then my mom did a fantastic job homeschooling us all. And it was really interesting to sort of grow up there but not completely be of there. And what I mean by that is that my dad was a cop. Uh, he was a cop in uh, Glendale, which is just north of L.A. So I grew up with having a foot in two different worlds. So you grew up in Los Angeles in Watts, in one mm -hmm. of the roughest neighborhoods, the African-American son of an L.A. police officer. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that phrase alone puts you at this very interesting cross-section of uh, culture. So you, right, you grow up as an African-American boy coming of age – at a time where LAPD was was frankly menacing, and 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 I can tell you story after story after story of LAPD being incredibly abusive to the inhabitants and people who I grew up with. Most people probably know the big riots are in '92. Yep. Uh, and those are the Watts riots, right? Yeah, I was 11 there. I was 11 there, and then all hell breaks loose. And one of my key memories of that moment is that my dad was at work, my mom was out of the house with one of my sisters. And then my dad called home and told me where the gun was and said, if anybody comes to the front door, who's not me or your mom, blow them away. And, and I'm like 10 and 11. I'm like, wait, what? It was serious. It was serious, man. So my dad is white American and my mom is from Panama and Central America, but I look a lot more like my mom. Sometimes I can kind of pass <laughs> as white and sometimes I can't. And so my experience is kind of strange in that I kind of can forget sometimes until it's brought up into my face, and it usually surprises me in that sense. So I guess my experience of being non-white is that I have stories of experiences where people reflect back to me that I'm non-white, and then I, it's like a, a little bit of a slap, like, oh, yes, that's right. <laughs> you, you don't belong. I mean, in the Bay Area here in California, there's just so many 
people of different ethnicities that you don't feel like the minority, right? That being said, you know, I worked in downtown Mountain View for a number of years and Mountain View is like the hub of that diversity in a lot of ways. But I remember walking in my car and there was a note on my car. This was just a few years ago and it was a typed out letter. I mean, it was specifically put on my car and it was somebody saying, this land is for white people and you should go back. You shouldn't be here. They said something along the lines of Columbus did us all a favor by clearing this place out. And it was, it was one of the first times I've experienced some racism in the past, but not here, you know, not, not in the heart of the Silicon Valley. And that, and that to me was a, it was a shaping moment, I guess, just because there was this feeling like someone was watching me. They identified me as different and they took the time to put this note on my car. And I am different. I do look different than the average, you know, white American. It was, a, it was a scary thing, but also just eye-opening in terms of there are people out there that really don't like me being here. Now, I know that's the minority. I'm not afraid for my safety. I think there are people that are, and legitimately so, in different places, and I'm not. But that's just, that was just a reminder to me that there are people here that don't like me being here, you know, that disagree with me being here. So when I was, I think maybe around 10 or so, I can't really remember, but after school, I was chased home by some folks who were affiliated with skinheads in my neighborhood. They were older <laughs> and, and had some chains and stuff like that. So I'm from Denver, Colorado. But to me, it was, you know, when I talked to my parents about it, it was like, they are bad. Those are just bad people. I didn't really impute that on everybody. I was taught not necessarily to do that. And so it, it was an experience with white America, but I didn't ever, I never thought that was just what they were about because I had other experiences. My father was, you know, a blue collar guy. He was on the job. Something went wrong and his boss, who was a white female, slapped him in the face. And the situation was so bad that he didn't feel like he could go to HR to say anything. He didn't oh think, feel gosh. like anybody would do anything about it. So he had to just swallow it and move on. But I want to say something positive as well, because I had some very good influences, too. You know, I, I played college football and played football all throughout my life. And my high school football coach, who was a, a white guy, was a very positive person in my life. Uh, in, a, in a time where, you know, growing up, a time of immaturity, he showed me patience. He so, showed me what manhood looks like. And so I appreciate those relationships, too. And so I can't come into this conversation and genuinely act like all my experiences have been terrible. And most people, I would imagine, even if they have more limited experiences, can't do that. That doesn't mean that racism isn't real. That doesn't mean that it doesn't need to be handled but it's more nuanced than sometimes we make it in the public square and the popular narratives make it. I feel like I don't belong and I feel like I stick out. And the reason being, though, is I think I was conditioned to think that. By who? By my mother. Okay. And let me just give you an example. I was in orchestra. I was really good. What'd you play? Violin, of Violin. course. <laughs> I played cello for a little bit, you know, and then I... Violin, I'm, of course. A violin, of course. <laughs> And I was really good. And the thing is, I wanted to be in choir. <laughs> and she just had like a little fit. Like she came to my choir concert and was like, you stick out. Your round face sticks out so much next to the other white kids. Go back to orchestra. Go back to what you're good at. Where you're you not can blend in with the instruments. Where you stuff. can blend in and be the best, basically. Mm. And she even straight up told me, and she's right. Your gifting is not in voice. Your gifting is in violin, which, I mean, she's right on that part. But that's unrelated to your round face sticking out. Right. Yeah. My round face with wow. my smaller eyes. Uh, yeah, it sticks out. 
So for me, I've had the privilege to go to really excellent schools and spend a lot of time sort of studying and, and understanding different cultures. But for a long time, the American experience has felt like a shirt that is ill-fitting that you put on and you know that it was not designed for you. Sort of uh, this idea where you're, you're wearing your big brother's shirt where it's sort of a hand-me-down and it wasn't custom made and the system wasn't designed for you. And then the other piece is it, it's sort of, for me, to be a non-white person in this country is to have pressure to feel like you have to perform and conform to a standard that strips you of, in a lot of ways, of, of both formally and informally strips you of your dignity and your identity. So it's to perform and to be something that isn't. So, and just, just the same way that right, I, I grew up playing sports, played sports in college, and often coaches would say, suck it up, be a man, don't cry. So there's this performative aspect to yeah. Americanism. There's this performative aspect to Christianity where, you know, I just got hit really hard or this dude just smoked me on the on the football field and I'm supposed to not cry when everybody knows that I'm in pain. And often my experience as an American feels very performative in that in that sense, right? Obviously, the dynamic between black and white in America is not chance because blacks were brought over as slaves. Mm -hmm. But in a certain sense, anywhere you find yourself, if there's a majority culture and some minority cultures, That's there right. will always be that pressure for the minority to conform to the majority. It's kind of like a rule of human society. That's right. I remember as a kid watching a clerk at Nordstrom ask my mom for multiple forms of ID and then watching mm. that same clerk not ask another woman for any ID. <laughs> As a college student, I took a Greyhound from Bellingham to Seattle to, to go visit a friend. I don't know why, but Border Patrol was at the bus station. But I went to board the bus, and, and there was a Border Patrol person standing in front of the bus. Agent asked me for my photo ID, which I didn't really think anything of because I was one of the first people to board the bus. And then I sat on that side of the bus so I could see everyone entering, and I saw that he didn't ask anyone else for their ID except for another African-American person that was also trying to board the bus. And then I just remember thinking, oh, my gosh, <laughs> like, did he just racially profile me? <laughs> and that that, right. feel, that feeling like really bizarre. I remember as a kid, like somebody following me in a really fancy store, you know, like the people who are checking for shoplifting and me thinking that was really yeah. strange. So you and I grew up together. We went to high school together and junior high. I don't and remember. Junior high. And junior high. Yeah. And I think that when white people think of themselves and their friends as being sort of post-racial or, you know, I don't see race. When people kind of think like that, I kind of think about like my friendship with you, our friendship with our, our friend John and Roman, who are Asian Americans. A lot of my friends in high school were not Caucasian. And so my experience was sort of like, whatever, that doesn't matter. We're going to still play all the small things on guitar together. I'm still going to try and get you to break the rules as student body president. That's all, you know, your ethnicity and my ethnicity are unrelated to that. But one thing that I'm learning as I talk to people is that for those who grow up in the non-majority ethnicity of the place in which they grow up, their experience can often be different than my experience as a member of the majority group. And so my question to you is, and it's especially kind of autobiographical because we spent so many of these years together, these formative years, was your experience during those years did it also feel like race was not a part of it or was there a different component being 
a full Indian ethnicity? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a good question. Um, and first of all, you being student body vice president was uh, quite a challenge as we both <laughs> vied for what to do. But anyway, I don't know if uh-huh. you're, I don't know if you're sort of making fun of me that you were president and I was vice president, or if you're just trying to let everybody know no, 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 how I much of think, a jerk I, I was. Very seriously, the desire to to you know thwart me, and you you even took office to uh, to attempt that. At so. the uppermost levels, I attempted to get you to break ranks. And do bad things. Yes, that's true. Yes, yes, it's true. It's true. One of the great joys of my high school experience. No, that's a good question, though. You know, and I think that uh, growing up, it, it wasn't something I really thought much about being being Indian. Well, I should say when when I was with my friends at school, and a lot of my friends at school were white. You know, and the f- ones that weren't. I mean, you mentioned like Roman and John. They just kind of we just kind of hung out the same. We acted the same. We talked about the same things. We played all the small things, all that kind of stuff, right? I, I think for me that happened for some s- specific reasons. Partly, uh, my parents getting divorced when I was young. Our, our connection to my Indian culture was kind of severed at some level when that happened, and so I didn't have strong identity there. Um, I didn't have a pull there, I should say, and so my friends were really um, with my home life. What it was, my friends were in a lot of ways family to me. And so hanging out with them, being with them, that felt like home. So what we were, whether that was we acted white or brown or whatever, some mix of it, that's what I identified with. You know, to answer your question, I didn't think about it. It wasn't something that I was thinking about my my race or any of that stuff. So when I was a kid, I used to, there's a park right across the street from where we grew up and I used to go play basketball there. And LAPD, it's a big park. I imagine it's really hard to patrol, and I imagine there's a lot of stuff going on. But as a kid, I'm just playing basketball in the park. But they would often come through and bully us, right? Often come through and ask us, what are you doing here? You know, where's your daddy's in prison? I probably locked him up, da, da, da. One time, a guy sort of smarted back to him, and they arrested him. Um, he got really upset, and I'll never forget, they bounced him off the hood of their car like 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 he was a basketball i mean picked him up two grown men picked him up a 15 year old kid and threw him as hard as they could off the hood of the car uh and it's shocking it's shocking his whole all his teeth came out he's bleeding all over the place and they look to us and say you effing you i mean i don't know if i can cuss on this show you but can. they say you fucking niggers. this is what happens to you but then you go home to a dad who spent all of his time in harm's way doing his absolute best and doing a great job dealing with the most violent elements of the city, right? So you see both of those. And I lived and lived at the tension of those cops who certainly don't represent all cops, but those cops, in my estimation, weren't doing great work. I'll never forget. So in California, you have your driver's license, but then my dad would give me his business card and tape it to the back of the license. That's amazing. So that when I had to give her, I'm 16, 17 driving for the first time, nervous as all get out, hands it to a 10, please don't move, I don't want to get shot, all this stuff like, oh my God, da, 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 da. I would hand them the card or hand them the license. And they would ask me a, a series of questions like, you know, who is this, da, 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 who's this guy? Da, it's my dad, he's a sergeant. Like, I don't know, I'm just trying to get home, man. And then would let me go or, you know, a ticket. Man, that's crazy. It's almost like if you're 17 years old and white, as an automobile driver, your white privilege is about the same as your dad police sergeant privilege was. Yeah. Like if we yeah. want to quantify white privilege in that very particular instance of being a teenage driver, 
Yeah. It's about the same as having your dad be a cop. Yeah. And not and not just a cop, a sergeant. Yeah, a sergeant, right. Yeah. I know that it might be tempting to hear this story about the cops in LA and chalk it up to some bad apples. And surely those cops were bad apples. And Jason is very respectful of good cops. But the history is a bit more complicated. Here's Jamar Tisby, who we will be hearing a lot more from in future episodes. He has his master's in history, and he's a founder of the Black Christian Collective, The Witness. And he's the co-host of the Pass the Mic podcast. And he says the history of municipal police departments, like Los Angeles, Seattle, anywhere else, actually has something to teach us about modern day problems between police and people of color. Here's Jamar. And look, this is the importance of history. Go back and look at the founding of municipal police departments. You know, before the Civil War, a city-funded police department was very rare. Um, Usually it would be sort of ad hoc militias if any enforcement was ever needed, and that was typically for poor whites. Why? Because black people are already under control. They were slaves, and if there was an issue... The slave owner typically dealt with it. But after the Civil War, you get emancipation, and now you get this mushrooming of municipal police departments. Why? Because now black people are free, but they still, as as white people, uh, many of them still wanted to maintain control. And so they had paid police forces. And then they passed the black codes, which included things like the vagrancy laws, which means if you didn't have a pass certifying that you were employed by a white person, typically, then you could be arrested. And because the 13th Amendment said it abolished slavery, but there's an exception clause right in the 13th Amendment that says, unless you're convicted of a crime, and then you can essentially be put back to involuntary servitude. So what happened was the police would, in in the 19th century, would serve as um, a, a net to catch all these black people, particularly black men, incarcerate them, and then they put them right back to work on plantations. And so if that's the root, <laughs> then what is the fruit? Even though it's 100 years later and more, uh, if that's been the, the, the origin of the police department, when did we ever correct that? When did we ever? And I'm not impugning individual police officers. I'm just saying the system and the and the idea was constructed in that milieu. Yeah. So and that's that's brand new to people, especially white people. One topic that came up a few times in these interviews is this concept of passing as white. Now, as I understand it. Whiteness is not only an ethnic category, but it's also a cultural category. So Rachel, for instance, who's half Caucasian and half Panamanian, she talks about being able to switch between white and Latina mode. Jehan, who is 100% ethnically Indian, talks about nonetheless considering himself at one point white. And then Candace, who's full Korean American, also talks about the two different faces or masks that she can switch between culturally. We'll start by hearing from Rachel. I know that people are going to see me one of two ways. And so I'm, I have become used to people either seeing me as white or seeing me as non-white. 
you mentioned that you can kind of pass sometimes mm-hmm. as white and other times not. Yeah. That is a phrase that I have been coming across in reading, mm-hmm. reading stuff from non-white Americans mm-hmm. and also in some of these interviews. Can you talk about that idea of passing for white? What is it? Why does it matter if you can or why does it feel in some moments that it would matter? Yeah, I mean, it matters because then you have access to the privilege that comes along with it (laughs) of being white. Yeah. Um, And so you know how to navigate when you need to use that (laughs) or when that's working in your benefit. And on the flip side, you can it can go the other way. Like, you know, when you want to not be white. But there's always an underlying feeling of I'm a fraud, though. Right. Like if I can pass on on either side, like, but I'm not really white enough and I'm not really brown enough. There's some guilt that comes along with whatever side you are claiming at the time. Well, that's really interesting. You think that guilt is irrational guilt? Is it just sort of is it guttural or what? Ought you to feel guilty about that, do you think? Or is it just this kind of unfortunate reflexive thing in a society that has racial sins? I mean, it's probably, I probably don't need to feel guilty, but I, I, I mean, like you said, I think it is sort of a guttural thing that happens and is an unfortunate consequence of the way we organize people. I think, though, at some level, I did feel white, as weird as that might be to say. I remember at one point, it was either high school or, or college, but I was talking to someone about, I don't even know what the, what the conversation was, but I used the phrase, white people like us. Really? Yeah, my friend said, Whoa, 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 you're not white, you know, and it just slipped out. You know, obviously I know I'm not white, but I just, I think, I think because I was so removed from the Indian culture and I don't know if it had to do with divorce or what exactly did that, but there was a separation for sure. Everyone I saw around me, my mom even married a white guy, you know, after, after the divorce. So everyone I saw around me was white. And so I think to me, that's just what I assumed I was at some level. Now, again, I was born in India. I went to India often growing up. So I'm very Indian, much more so than you're, you know, the next second generation guy you might see. But still, I didn't identify with that growing up. I think this will be a journey I'll be on for the rest of my life. But even in the last few years, realizing that some of my maybe push against the Indian culture had to do with whatever rejection I might have felt, be that real or not, as a kid based on my my parents' divorce. And and I pushed against it kind of wholesale, the whole the whole thing. And so I liked the American culture, I guess, for lack of a better phrase. But I liked that more than what I was feeling from the Indian side. Now, I should add the caveat, I guess, that 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 I mean, a lot of that was my perception, you know, it might have been what my parents had said or whatever. But really, I was here in the States. And so any idea I had about my Indian background, it came through the filter of my parents and whatever frustration they were experiencing at the time. So you know, that's not to say that I was rejected. I feel like a lot of our family over there loved me and cared about me and all that. But that wasn't something I I felt or experienced along the way. I was born here. I don't have an accent. I knew how white people functioned, you know. But what was interesting is learning how to function both in Korean culture and then functioning differently in white culture, if that makes sense. Being able to wear both masks, yeah. basically. Yeah. Because they're different. And right now I wear a white mask because that's what my family is, you know. And I don't mind that, but I do kind of wish I... I wish I was more careful about letting my Korean pass go so quickly. Like I was almost like, all right, peace out. I'm leveling up, guys. You know, 
I'm such a dick. But that is kind of how I felt. I was like, yeah. I'm marrying a pastor. Like, we're, peace out. And then I never turned back to be like, how are you guys doing, my Korean freaking family? And that was that was my biggest mistake, to not keep a foot in both. Is there cognitive dissonance? And if so, can you describe the cognitive dissonance that you feel between those two modes of being? That's mm-hmm. something that is, as like a Scandinavian-German mix, yeah. is so alien to me. I got invited to be a bridesmaid at my Korean, one of my Korean friends. Mm-hmm. And this was after I had my babies or my first two babies. And in American culture, when someone says, hey, you look beautiful or like, hey, you did well. What do we say? Say thank you or oh, no, it's just whatever. Yeah. It was definitely. <laughs> well, I don't know. Which one is it? I think I mean, I I feel like American culture is more along the lines of say thank you. Yeah. You accept it when someone compliments you. And what I very quickly realized, and I had forgotten it, was that in Korean culture, you don't usually say thank you. You could just say, oh, no, 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 no. Because you, you, yeah. you have to be humble about it, right? Mm. No, no, no. I'm not I'm not good. But I'm you not... just had two babies. And so for someone to say, you look good, your reflex was to say thank you. And that was a transgression in that culture. Yeah, I think so. Because then I saw how the other girls were responding to something like that. And and it's almost like being five years old and realizing, ooh, you're not supposed to do that. Okay, I'll do that next time. And then I remember at the wedding, my aunt literally came up to me and said, you look so beautiful. And I remember purposefully going, no, 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 instead of saying thank you. Yeah. And I remember her saying well, to me, you were the most beautiful up there, you know, like cause she's gracious and beautiful mm-hmm. just as a human. We'll end this section about passing as white with Jason, who reminds us that actually historically Irish, Jewish and Polish immigrants were not originally thought of as white. But whiteness was something that they sort of culturally earned over time in the minds of other Americans of Western European descent. Jewish, Irish folks, Polish folks, when they first got here, were not white and worked really hard and achieved and were able to pass for white. Because everyone we're hearing from today is a Christian, I was interested in what they saw as the relationship between their experience of growing up non-white in a white culture or a dominantly white culture and their Christian faith. So what's the relationship between those two things? So I asked them, how does Jesus speak into all of this? I mean, the the simple answer is that Jesus loves me. (laughs) Yeah. No matter if I'm choosing one side or another or, or don't fit in, Jesus loves the ones who don't fit in. And that feels really good. Something I can maybe like lean back on when I feel confused about what's going on with regard to my racial identity, that my deeper identity is in being his daughter. If you just look at what he did, he spent time with the people on the margins. He advocated for the people on the margins. He loved and lived with the folks who were literally thrown away and cast away by both the Roman system and the Jewish religious structure. 
if actions do speak louder words, he spent time with the prostitutes and the widows and the people who were, who were broken by the system. And I think if we're serious about following Christ, we would do well to follow his example and spend our resources and time with folks at the margins. In what way does Jesus speak into your experience as the non-majority culture in the States? You know, as I've gotten older and started to wrestle, I think more with, okay, I'm I'm brown, my wife's white, my kids are now in between, like they're, I mean, they're half Indian. And if you look at them, they don't look half Indian, which is very unfortunate. Um, <laughs> I leave them out in the sun as much as I can, and it doesn't seem to do anything except make their hair more blonde. But you know, the reality is they are half Indian. And so, you know, what is it, as a father, how do I help them understand their identity? And I think one of the first things I have to do is understand my identity, right? Because kids don't become who you say to become who you are. And so for me, I want Jesus to, to be my identity, you know, and, and not my race or color or, or ethnicity. That being said, you know, I do believe that God chose where I'd be born. You know, he chose what color my skin would be. He chose what level of spiciness my taste buds could endure, you know. So Jesus being my identity, it's also not something to hide behind. You know, I'm not saying that, oh, I'm not, I'm not Indian, I'm Christian. You know, I don't think, I don't think that's really biblical. Um, so it's complicated, but I think it's a good thing that it's complicated. I think so much of the power of the gospel lies in the fact that it both transcends cultural boundaries while also being worked out within those cultural boundaries. Um, it, you know, there are some religions that require a specific culture in order for the religion to be worked out, but Christianity doesn't require that, which, frankly, it might be easier if it did. Because then at least you know, okay, these are the rules I have to follow. Here's what my faith is supposed to look like in the public square. Follow these rules, wear these clothes, whatever it is. But, you know, the core tenets of Christianity are meant to be expressed in the culture in which we find ourselves. So in terms of how Jesus speaks into my identity, I think I want to understand, okay, he's put me in this place, in this body, with this skin, with these people, with these connections, with these relationships. And I'm grateful for it. And I want to understand why he did that. You know, and what does it mean for me to live out my faith um, and belief in him, given the fact that, yeah, I am, I am Indian. I do have kids that are half Indian. And what does that mean? I, I don't think, you know, if God didn't care at all about race, he would have made us all the same. But he made us different. I think he does care about these differences. And for us to understand that, uh, the strengths that they each possess and how different parts of the body come together to form something, um, I think that's important to think through. I mean, even being chased home by, by skinheads. Jesus's walk had an understanding of our brokenness and spoke a lot about forgiveness and why people might be in the situations that they are think certain ways because we are depraved. And so understanding the gospel helped me to say that is wrong. I want to fix it. I don't want anybody to have to go through that. Those people are very wrong, but I still have to pray for them, but I still can't dehumanize them and act like they're not redeemable right or act like if i was in their position i might not be doing the same thing that to me is what's truly unique about christianity to say yeah i can be upset i might even be angry for a little bit but at the end of the day i cannot treat them i can't even treat my enemy in a way that dehumanizes my enemy that's what really sticks out to me. And when it comes to race relations, that's something I always try to emphasize. Be upset. Use that passion and determination to, to change things, but don't let it turn into cynicism. Don't let it turn into you feeling another group of people can't be redeemed.
We're going to get into this more specifically in a future episode. But one thing that I've become really interested in, especially with the 2016 election, is the overlap between racial disparity, racial tension, and then church life. We'll start with my interview with Justin. Are there any notable differences between your experience at a predominantly African-American church and at a racially diverse church? Sure, sure. I think you you see that worship is, is a little bit different. The issues and topics that come up are usually a little bit different. A lot of times in the traditional black church, not all the time, you'll you'll see more of a focus on social justice issues. Can you talk a little bit about the difference in your experience between Korean churches and Caucasian churches? Because that's something I just have no frame of reference for at all. Saving face is such a huge part of Asian culture. Mm -hmm. Honor and honor. You don't embarrass your family. You don't up their name. Your reputation has to be clean. Like, don't do anything stupid, right? But with all that to say, like, I'm lucky that I come from a family who does understand grace and does know how to move forward even when crap happens, you know? But the gossip level is just detrimental, I believe, in in Korean churches. And I'm not sure if American churches are as bad. I'm sure there are some. Maybe that's that's immaturity. But the gossip level in Asian churches, specifically Korean churches, is destructive. Absolutely destructive. Is there anything that is uniquely Korean about the church experience that you've had in those churches that is a good thing? (laughs) Oh, man, they're funny. Korean people are so funny and passionate that when I got out of it and, you know, married a white guy and started hanging out with white people, I was like, you guys aren't funny. I don't find anything. Puns aren't funny to me, you know, Um, (laughs) but Korean people are known to be really passionate. They're smart. They're wise with when to talk and when not to talk, but almost to a fault of they usually won't say things because they don't want to be confrontational. They're a little bit more passive. We're trying to find good things here, aren't we? Yeah. I mean, and you know, some of that is some of that is good. Sometimes being passive is a good thing. Yeah. Sometimes not saying something that that you're thinking is a good thing. Like you got to know when to shut up. I think my wife would be the first to agree with you. They're really good at praying. What does that mean? Good at praying? Man, there is a time of prayer when people can speak out loud and pray on their own. And it is probably the most, I mean, it's passionate. It's, oh, it's emotional. So it just sounds like a huge cacophony if you're in the room. What's cacophony mean? Um, Like a big, a big kind of noisy mess. Can you use elementary words for me? (laughs) (laughs) English is not my first language. (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. No, it, it does. It does sound like a big noisy mess. But in that, there's there's something really beautiful and special that happens, sure. and I'm not sure how to explain it. So there's a f- <clears throat> there's a a freedom of worship that you experienced in your Korean churches that you have not experienced in the Caucasian churches. It's just different. It's yeah. just different. But it certainly sounds more free. At least in that prayer in that, moment. In that yeah. in that way, yes. And maybe the thing that's so beautiful about it is that in other ways. This is just clicking for me in my head, just talking through it. But I think the reason it's so beautiful, too, is because I have felt like that culture is so big on keeping your shit together. And in those times of prayer, when people are actually praying what is on their hearts, they don't have their shit together. Yeah. 
And it's beautiful like that. It's like a beautiful mess, you know? The really negative interactions I've had with white folks, there's a few that happen in church, but there's also, they're so charged that religion doesn't come up in it. The ways white folks generally writ large have hurt me are far more subtle, right? So I've been called, you know, the N-bomb a few times. I've uh, been clearly, what to me, what felt clearly discriminated against. I had some really, really painful experiences, especially in high school and college. What I will say about the white church is that my experience in white churches has been one of invisibility. And what I mean by that is that my tradition, my culture, my preferences, my likes and dislikes have not been heard. They've not been represented. And that that is painful. Whether or not folks know they're actively hurting me, it, it doesn't absolve the pain, right? So I'm talking about really practically types of worship music and saying, hey, like if we are actually interested in being a multicultural, multi-ethnic congregation, here's the sort of music that I would like. And yeah, I how, have, many, how many African-Americans listen to Hillsong? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and I think this is this is one of the things that Henry Ellison talks about in The Invisible Man, right? And this is also what James Baldwin talks about in terms of to operate both in a religious context and outside as an African-American or a person of color. You have to know a lot about the dominant culture, right? Uh, I've said this before where I have to know the Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers or Nirvana and Kurt Cobain and all these icons, right? I got to know who Kevin Spacey is. I got to know who Harvey Weinstein is, right? But that knowledge is not reciprocated. And, and I felt yeah. that very, very acutely in both white churches and churches that claim to be multi-ethnic. So when we talk about, ah, oh, we can't really do gospel because we don't have a choir, or we're going to hire people, or this or that, or like, I don't know. I mean, you know, we can't, can't really dance in church, or like, ah, yeah, I can't sing in another language. That'll make people uncomfortable, right? And, and, and it will, and it will. And I think there's, there's, there's not an acknowledgement that I'm uncomfortable. And I think if we're actually doing community, if we're actually doing Christianity well, everybody is both comforted by the gospel and challenged by the gospel. If you look at Jesus, he both comforts the woman at the well. He both comforts Zacchaeus, he comforts Lazarus, but he also challenges, makes very uncomfortable the establishment and the comfort and the, the leaders of those days. When he goes to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and says, like, hey, the kingdom of God is coming. That is not a comforting thought. So if, if we're actually trying to put our money where our mouth is, we have to live in that tension. And, le- and of course, led by the Spirit and all the other things. I, I'm not saying advocating that we should just go do stuff. But I'm saying we need to humbly consider being uncomfortable and using discomfort as a spiritual and a, a soul-forming force for good. Have you ever found that white Christians have looked down on you or when you were at the Korean American church, looked down on your church or your pastor? Or has there has it been sort of peer level quality in your No, experience? it's not peer level. Not every pastor is like that. There are some pastors who are fantastic, right? But there is, I mean, even just accents alone. When someone's immigrated from another country and there is an accent and you're talking to someone who has been born here. It's completely different. People talk to my mother differently than the way that they talk to me. Do you feel any sense that white Christians look down on you or your pastor or your church in sort of any broad sense? Theologically, sometimes I think there there is some of that. The thought that if there's any emotion used in a service or if, you know, as we contextualize the gospel and the Bible, that that may be lesser. 
But at the same time, you know, to be honest, there are things that I look at that evangelicals do and say that's that's not the way it should be. <laughs> so right. I'm not completely innocent of that. But more so, yeah, you, you feel that sometimes that there's a, a theological supremacy almost that goes along with it. And, you know, it is what it is. There's a common sense in sort of Anglo-Saxon culture or white Western culture that emotion is the opposite of reason, that if we're being emotional, we're not being rational. Do you right. feel that creep in like, oh, well, if the congregation is yelling amen, if the orator is is giving a rousing speech, then we're losing some truth. Is that kind of what it feels like? I'm guessing that's the interpretation that some white evangelicals have, that the emotion is the opposite of, of reason. But I would say this. Our reason is flawed as well. And so if, if, if you... Mm completely depending on your own reason you're going to go wrong in that regard too and some people do get go too far on the emotion side but in general the very good preachers that i know are able to use emotion to really get the message across and not in any way that would take away from the word it's almost like white christians feel like because that can take away from the word i don't want to do it at all right but I don't see in the gospel that says, like, because there is a line to be drawn, don't go near the line whatsoever. Don't use emotion at all. I think it can communicate well if you do it with fidelity. So, you know, you've been interviewing all these categories of voters. And for this category, non-white Christian, identifying as evangelical or not identifying as evangelical didn't matter to me. You could be either one, and I didn't really care. I still wanted to interview you. Nonetheless, as you might imagine, our non-white voters have an interesting relationship with that term evangelical. And I asked them if they considered themselves evangelical, as well as what that term had come to mean in their own minds. Do you consider yourself an evangelical Christian? I have never used that terminology for myself. Why not? I don't, I don't think I've ever used that for myself. Just because I never thought it, it applied. Whenever I heard people speaking of evangelicals, it was in relation to white conservative Christians. And so, no, I, if we want to be technical about the definition, I guess I could fit into that. But that's not something I've ever called myself. I don't because my morality views have changed. I don't feel like homosexuality is wrong. I don't feel like it is something that someone needs to be saved from. So these kind of moral issues you feel like are tied up with what it means to be an evangelical Christian? Absolutely. Yeah. The parts that are really difficult is this fusion between evangelical Christians and power, right? And that's not only endemic to the U.S. It extends all the way back to the fourth century in Constantine. So fourth century on, when you start looking at evangelicalism and how it's fused with power and systems of oppression, it makes it really hard to sort of go all in on that label belief-wise, you'd consider yourself an evangelical. There's just a yep. problem. Exactly. Language-wise, exactly. yeah. Exactly. And why don't you consider yourself an evangelical? Because politics and the church have become so molded together or confusing. <laughs> it's important for me to make that distinction. I, I, not to say that my faith isn't political, but that I don't follow the same political agenda that's become really synonymous with the evangelical church today and in, in the current age we live in. Do you consider yourself an evangelical Christian? Um, yes and no. Uh, and, uh, and I don't mean to be dodgy about that, uh, that answer. Um, I, I do in as much as, you know, 
being evangelical means, you know, believing Christ died on the cross, rose from the dead, and uh, that sacrifice removes the penalty of sin. You know, I believe that he's alone God, you know, and as much as being evangelical means choosing to have him on the throne of your life, I believe that. I believe that I want to share my faith with people. I believe that the Bible is, is uh, you know, highest authority um, for what I believe. You know, so you're I, literally I like saying these word for word in like the Lifeway research rubric for what makes someone an evangelical theologically. Are you familiar with this language? I, I am from school. Yeah. I am. Like so the I, Bible I is the highest authority is the exact language from the question. <laughs> so theologically, you are an evangelical is what you're theologically, saying. Theologically, I am. If yeah. you were to take um, the, the test, you'd be one. But there's a but. There's a but. Um, you know, I think that there's a, a certain label that evangelicalism has in the United States, especially especially over the last few years since the Trump election. But I think it's gone past. It's from before that as well. I'm not sure I was in as in tune with um, with that labeling before. You know, when they say that evangelical Christians voted a certain way in the last election, I don't identify with that. I don't. I don't think that that uh, includes me. If you could define the term evangelical, what do you think it means, or what does it mean to you? <clears throat> I'm going to lean back for that one. <laughs> I mean, the, the term itself, I think, comes from the word to evangelize. And so I, w- I would understand it as being to spread the gospel. So I do see myself as valuing being evangelical in that sense. But I think that the word right now has come to mean something different. It's about church, going to church, making sure that everyone's saved and not going to hell and big emphasis on preaching the gospel, sharing the gospel, sharing the gospel. Yes. Living a godly life, living like Jesus, trying to be like Jesus, which I mean, not all of that's bad. Right. But I think so far you haven't said anything about gay marriage. So I'm wondering where this connection comes for you. Well, I think because all the evangelicals that I know of and grew up with, I mean, in all the churches that I've been in, whether it was the Korean church or the white church, anything like that was looked down upon, whether it was gay marriage, whether it was bisexual, whether it was drinking too much, like anything. I don't know. It was all just gossip. Everything is all gossip. It sounds like you have experienced a very socially judgmental Christian atmosphere. Oh, yeah. So much so that even when, because I feel like in the Korean community, especially in this area, especially in church, man, it's it's pretty brutal. And I'm not sure if it stems from being Korean or stems from being a Christian. Like, I think there is a little bit of both. Just... Yeah, all mingled up. Mingled up together, and it, it gets pretty pretty gnarly, actually. There is freedom at churches, in Korean churches, and white churches, but I did bring a lot of that Korean guilt, shame, all of that stuff into my American church experience, my Caucasian church experience, and it didn't make it go away. Like I think a lot of people felt the same way that I did. So it sounds like in your mind there is some indelible connection between evangelical Christianity and social conservatism. Yes. And kind of gossip and judgmentalism and stuff. Yes. Okay. So for you that's what you think of and that's why you don't consider yourself that way anymore. Mm-hmm. Well and I mean I do let me just tell you the story. When I got out of an evangelical church I I looked around at a whole different churches. I went to Eastlake. I went to another Acts 29 church 
didn't feel welcome, didn't feel home, felt super misunderstood there. I even tried out another Korean church. Like I stopped by one of my old Korean churches and it was good to see them, but there was still, there was a disconnect there still. So what I found is that coming out of the church, I started finding my people outside of the church and started realizing I have been so afraid to be close with people who are outside of the church because a, they're not Christians Two, they're going to lead you astray three, whatever, you know, like there's all these reasons of why not to be close with people outside of the church. And what I'm realizing is these people are actually my people. Hmm. They're real. They talk more honestly. They're more accepting. They're more loving. Like I have one friend who I can tell her anything. And it's just, instead of looking at me with their head tilted, going and their eyes squinting like when i talk to some of my christian friends about where i'm at and they go oh yeah well i'm praying for your soul you know and i'm just like i don't need you to pray for my soul i need you to love me at where i am and i don't get that from a lot of my christian people right and so i've transitioned out of my main community being christian people and now my main community is non-Christian people, and it's a lovely life over here. What the listeners did not see during that little pause was you <coughs> flipping an airbird. <laughs> We're going to wrap up this week with a kind of white American guy for dummies question <laughs> that I asked Rachel, but that she was very gracious in answering. Oh, I do have one more question that I thought of earlier. Okay. Here is like a very dumb white boy question for you. Okay. You know, I I used to be guilty of asking people, where are you from? Like you mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. And had transitioned at some point to, what is your ethnicity? Mm-hmm. You know, if I'm curious about that. Mm-hmm. Is a white person asking a non-white or less white or whatever person, what your what is your ethnicity? Is that offensive? Can it be? Is it, does it depend on the situation? You know, oftentimes I'm genuinely curious that there's no sort Mm -hmm. of power dynamic in my own mind. Mm -hmm. Uh, But what is that experience like for the person being asked? I think it depends on the person. I think for me, it depends on who's asking me and my relationship with that person. If it's someone that I know already or have some context with, And it feels, I mean, if it feels like they're just genuinely really interested in getting to know me, (laughs) like, um, then that feels okay. If that's like the only question they ask me, then it feels a little bit like they don't really care about knowing me. They just want to know. They're just gauging the room like this person is not white and they just want to know. And they get to ask me that and they don't understand that there's like a power in being able to ask me that. (laughs) I don't know. Yeah. More like a cur- you're like a curiosity at that point as opposed to a person. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. It feels it feels like I'm just like a thing and not really a person. So I think that like what I'm trying to that's exactly what I'm trying to articulate is like if I have a relationship and I feel like they're interested in getting to know how that is part of me as a person and like affects me as a person, that feels different than someone just sort of asking that and then not really wanting to get to know me as a person. Man, I kind of miss the music from the Depolarized podcast. Anyway, uh, guys, thank you for listening to this. Thank you uh, three years later to everybody who agreed to be interviewed three years ago. 
Uh, if you haven't already done it, 8cantwait.org and email, text, whatever, Twitter, tweet at, Facebook message, your mayor and police chief uh, that you would like these additional policies implemented, whichever ones are not currently being implemented in your city or area. And I've also got links to uh, Justin Gibney's um, campaign, the AND campaign. He works with Michael Ware, um, a guy I really respect a lot. They're doing great work. And then for Jamar Tisby, who we heard a couple times there, I have a link to The Witness, um, his uh, his organization, as well as the Pass the Mic podcast that he co-hosts with Tyler Burns. Uh, very much recommend that show. Um, it's, it's I don't know, it's just a great show. They, they, they offer a really cool perspective. Uh, they talk about pop culture, theology, news, um, you know, race, race stuff, is, of course, as well. And I think that's it for this week. Uh, I'm not sure what's going to be next week. I have an episode kind of in the hopper. We'll see if it is feels like right timing for it or not. Um, but either way, thank you guys for listening this week and, and we'll see you later. <laughs>